Well, didn't you enjoy the music today? Wasn't it great? And we enjoy that every week. And we just appreciate the band and the choir so much. We want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today. And in this chapter, we find uh, the chapter on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We do want to welcome you here once again this morning. Uh, some of you are our guests. And let me share with you what's going to sort of take place the rest of the service. I'm going to be delivering God's word here and just trying to teach you some things about the resurrection. And then at the end of the message, I'm going to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ into your life and heart. And then we're going to sing after that, but I want to give you that opportunity this morning because that's the most important decision I believe anyone could ever make in their life. And we're going to show you that here in just a few moments. You know, this is not just, though, a message for those who are not followers of Christ. This is also a message for you that are church members as well. I remember a while, a good while back, actually a long time ago, that we, um, I came to a place in my life where I was wondering, God, are you even there? I read in the Bible, and the Bible does say this several times, that if you ask anything in his will, he will do it. Well, I know I was asking uh, this one particular thing um, in his will, and it didn't come out like I wanted it to, and not certainly in, his, in my timing. And so I wondered to myself, well, maybe this is like the deist God, you know, of Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers of our country. He believed that God just sort of wound up the world and just took off, maybe to another world somewhere, I, I don't know, and sort of just wound it up and said, men, you, men, women, you just take care of it. And so maybe it's kind of like that. Maybe he sweeps through every once in a while and just sort of uh, takes care of things. I knew there was a God because, after all, you, you either matter is uh, eternal or uh, the supreme being is eternal. And so I don't believe that uh, this material that we have today uh, exists forever and has always existed. And so I believe, therefore, there is a God. But God, are you really there? I mean, after all, the other religions I was studying at the time said you couldn't have a relationship with God. And, and one of the things that is different about Christianity, I found, than any other religion is that Christianity teaches you that God wants to have a relationship with you. That's the reason he created Adam and Eve in the first place. Well, maybe it's like the other religions. You know, God's way up here, man's way down here, and you can't possibly reach God. And God is just not going to be bothered by mere men. Well, as I looked at that, I was fortunate the fact that as a young Christian, I studied a lot about the resurrection. And I knew that if the resurrection were true, then God did want to have a relationship with us. Because if a re re uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ were true, then what he did for us on the cross was an authentic thing. He did it to die on the cross there for our sins. Therefore, if he did all that, then obviously he would want a relationship with us and he would want to communicate to us. And so that comes to the word of God, that God has given us his word to communicate. So we open up that today, understanding that maybe you're here this morning and you're a little skeptical about some things. So every time somebody says, oh, a miracle happened to me, or I got healed of this, you think to yourself, well, you know, I'm not sure about that. And I think it's natural to question things, and there's nothing wrong with it, as long as you go to the right sources to get the answers and get the real truth. And so as we open up the Word of God, we find that Paul is, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to a church at Corinth, and they were going through a lot of problems. At the end of the book, he gives 
the greatest passage in Scripture about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this church was not doubting the resurrection of Christ, by the way. They were doubting their own resurrection. The idea was, okay, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. I mean, after all, some of us are alive today, and remember that, we saw him, but does that mean our resurrection is true? Well, we're not going to be looking at that so much this morning, but in the context of all that, we find several proofs that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And so I want to ask some questions this morning and try to answer them. First of all, did it happen? Second of all, why did it happen? And then thirdly, how do you get on? How do you get in on it? All right, how do you apply it? All right, first of all, we read the first four verses as we look at the question, did it happen? Now, this is, this is typical among people today. They would say it happened something like this. They haven't studied the Bible, really, but they say, look, this is what happened. Jesus, this man Jesus of Nazareth was born, okay, that's history, and he lived on this earth and died on a Roman cross, was, was put into a grave, and then the disciples began to embellish that story, and he became really a hero to them. And the more they embellished it, legends began to form. And then hundreds of years later, those legends were written down as Scripture. Now, the problem to that, even though it may sound good to you, the problem to that is none of that is true. It's simply none of it is true. And we're going to look at that this morning. Look at verse 1. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, by the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. Now, this word preached is an interesting word. It means, literally in the original language, it means to herald something. Now, many of you watch news, and if you watch local news, they usually have what we call soft news, and they have hard news. The soft news is just stuff that, you know, is almost frivolous, but it's a good story. You know, some, some church gave something to somebody, or this neighbor helped out this, or, you know, a dog was rescued. That's soft news. But hard news is something that you need in your life. They call it hard news. You know, this is something you've, you need to know. And this is what he was saying. Look, back in this day, they didn't have TV. They didn't have radio. They didn't have the internet. And so what they did for the hard news, they would walk out into the streets, walk the streets, and be preaching or heralding the news of the day. Now, Paul is saying, look, I heralded this. What did he herald? What did he preach? He says the gospel. Now, oftentimes in today, if you study uh, maybe some churches, they, uh, they use the gospel in a very broad sense. It's almost like anything in the Christian life is gospel. That's part of the gospel, the gospel of life. And, but really, the, the original meaning was good news. That's just simply what it means. It means good news. He was heralding some good news. What was that good news? He says, verse 2, and by which you are being saved and you hold fast to the word, I preach to you unless you believed in vain. Now, I don't want to confuse you here. It says being saved. The very moment that you and I receive Christ, we are saved from the penalty of our sin. But then we need to grow in Christ, and as we do, we're saved from the power of sin. And he's kind of talking about both of those things. He says, if you hold fast to the word, I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. So you can't believe in vain. How do you do that? You believe it with all your head, and you believe all the facts that I'm sharing with you today, but it doesn't reach your heart. It doesn't reach your life. It doesn't make a difference in your life. And so notice here in verse 3, the gospel. This is the most important two verses in the Bible. Here we go. For I delivered to you, Paul says, of first importance. You say, well, how do you know it's the most important verse? It says so. Right here. It says, of first importance, what I also received that Christ died, 
for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Well, this is what we know about the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what the early church preached all the time, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again. So what do we know about the crucifixion? We know that Jesus was beaten. We know that he was nailed to a cross. We know that a spear was put into his side and blood and water came out. And that was always a sign, I think, of death, at least I, as I read it. And then he, was, he uh, was pronounced dead by two Roman executioners, wrapped, like, wrapped in cloth like a mummy, because he breathed through everything. Roman, the Roman seal was put on the tomb for three days. A four-ton rock rolled over the face of the grave. Roman guards were guarding the tomb and after three days, the grave was empty. Here's what it says in Matthew. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Well, did that really happen? Well, there's many theories that have come up uh, over the years. Most of them, by the way, are very, very uh, old. Why is that? Well, in past generations... We sought the facts, the truth. And so they were trying to find out what the truth was about this. In more recent times, we feel like the truth is what is true for us or whatever works, really, is pragmatism. If the resurrection of Jesus works for me, then it's true. If it doesn't, well, I don't really need that. And so not so many theories have come up recently. But there was an old theory called the swoon theory that Jesus never died. And he was just wrapped up. He was beaten like that, wrapped up like a mummy. Couldn't breathe through the whole thing. But somehow after three days, he resuscitated. And then uh, he rolled away the stone himself and came out. And then he hid from everybody else for the rest of his life. No one really believed that. That really never really took off very well. And then there was hallucination theory, which was, uh, was not really... Um, was worse, actually, than the swoon theory. Hallucination theory said that no one really saw the resurrected Lord, but rather everybody hallucinated. Well, what was amazing about that is what we see in the next few verses. It says, they appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. You know, it would be pretty much a step of faith to believe that 500 people had the same exact hallucination at the same time. And so no one, no biblical scholar, whether secular or uh, Christian, believes that either. And so what does it come down to? Either the grave was empty or somebody stole the body, pure and simple. Now, if somebody stole the body, then that means that it'd have to either be a friend or foe, a friend, a disciple, or one of the Jewish leaders of that day. Now, if it would have been a friend, well, that kind of makes sense. They had a motive. Jesus said that I'm, you tear down this temple in three days, I'm going to build it back up. He predicted his resurrection, though the disciples didn't really get it. Nevertheless, he did predict it. So they could go in, they could steal the body. Now, the problem is they didn't really have access. They, the Roman guards were there. There's a Roman seal over the tomb. They didn't have access in order to do that. But here's the greater argument. People have died for their faith. There's no question about that. But when they died for their faith or died for their cause, they really felt like their cause was just. They believed in their cause. The disciples died for their faith. Peter was, as it, legend says, 
Tradition says he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified the same way his Savior was crucified. We have James being stoned to death. We have others being crucified, jailed. Uh, Paul spent all that time in prison. Why would people do this? Why would people die for a faith they knew was a hoax, was false? Well, no one would do that, much less a very large group of people would not do that. So it had to be, therefore, an enemy, right? I mean, that's what the book of Matthew even said. They spread that story that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, the disciples came and stole the body. But what about the enemy? What about those who uh, wanted to squelch Christianity? Well, if they went in, they had, they had access. They could have told the Roman guards, hey, look, just kind of walk away. We'll pay you this much money, and we'll go right in, get the body. And then they could have, they could have revealed the body. They could have brought the body out after the disciples had done all this preaching and just squelched the whole Christian, Christian movement even before it got started. The problem is they never produced the body. There was no motive for them to do that. They, they would have made things worse after the resurrection than they ever were before it. And so the conclusion would have to be that the, the grave was empty because he rose again. But what is the evidence of that? Well, I'm, I don't really have time to give you all the evidence, but let me share a couple of things with you maybe you haven't thought of before. First of all, the witnesses themselves. Every gospel, all four gospels, when they tell the story of the resurrection, they all said the women saw the body first. Now, why would they write that? I don't want to be politically incorrect here. I'm just telling you what was back then in the New Testament times. But in the New Testament times, a woman would not even testify in court because her testimony had no credibility. So why would the disciples, writing the scriptures, start off by saying the women were there unless it was true, unless they were just reporting the facts? They wouldn't do it for argument's sake. They were just simply reporting the facts. And then, look who else saw this. It says Peter, Cephas, he's the one crucified upside down, 500 at one time. Then it appeared to James, James, the brother of Jesus, was also among them. And then Paul says, last of all, in verse 8, as to the one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We see the witnesses. We see the credibility of the witnesses. You know, these people were alive for a long time. And uh, the Bible says here that many of them were still alive when all this was written. Now, how important is that? Well, I think it's crucial. I mean, after all, if it was written like legends hundreds of years later, then we look back maybe like us at the Revolutionary War and think to ourselves, well, no real history has been written at all about the Revolutionary War. That's not true. We'll just suppose that it is. Now we're going to write the history of the Revolutionary War, and we would maybe vilify some people and really uh, bring glory to other people, right? But that didn't happen. In fact, the book of 1 Corinthians was written between 20 and 25 years after the resurrection of Christ. The book of Mark, the very first gospel that was actually written, was written between 15 and 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. Now, let me bring this into perspective a little bit. Many of you here remember 9-11. In fact, how many of you remember 9-11? Anybody here? Just me? I'm not going to call on you, so you can vote. You, know, you can raise your hand. Um, yeah, we all remember. In fact, I remember where I was. I can remember where I was in the church office, and somebody said, hey, look what's happened on television. I look, and I see a plane landing 
in the middle of a building. The financial institutions, the Twin Towers up in New York City. I've been there before they went down, and I went there after they went down. They're, they're not there anymore. But suppose I were to come back and tell you, hey, look, this is what happened, this is what, and you look at me and say, that never happened. See, if, if that had never happened in 9-11, I could write about it all I want to, preach about it all I want to, and you look back and say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute now, I, I was there. That never happened. That's what could have happened in this group of people. All these people were writing and they were preaching, and the message of the early church was the resurrection of Christ. And these 500 people say, hey, look, you're, don't bring me into it. I mean, after all, you say that I saw, but I never really saw Jesus. And the rest of them could have said the same thing. What about James, the brother of Jesus Christ? Maybe the biggest argument at all, of all, because at first he didn't believe until he saw the resurrected Lord. Now let me ask you something. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was God? Now, maybe your mama thought he was God. But what would it convince you? you say, oh, my brother's God. Not only that, but he died on the cross for my sins, and he rose again on the third day, and I've seen him. What would it take for you to believe your brother was God? Whatever it would take, whatever it would take, James had that evidence. James was convinced, the leader of the early church, he was convinced that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. Lee Strobel has written many books. Lee Strobel was a reporter for Chicago Tribune. A, a movie was made about his life. And he was an atheist, and his, uh, his wife was also an atheist. But his wife um, started going to church with some friends and ended up becoming a follower of Christ, a Christ follower, um, saved, and started joining the church. And he got all flustered about it. He says, you know, my wife is falling under the spell of this church and these people. I've got to save her. And so he went to a Christian friend of his at work, and he said, what, what would I do to really find evidence against Christianity? He said, well, that's easy. Basically, it's a house of cards. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ falls, all of it falls, all of it. But if it stands, then all of it stands. So he went about trying to disprove the resurrection of Christ only to become a believer himself, and since then has written many books. But here's what he said, partially his conclusion. If you were holding a trial to determine the facts concerning the resurrection. And if you were called to the witness stand, every witness who personally encountered the resurrected Jesus, and we cross-examined them for only 15 minutes, and we went around the clock without a break, we would be listening to first-hand testimony to more than 128 hours or five days' worth of testimony. Who could not believe this when all the stories seemed to coincide together? What about you? What about you? And you say, well, okay, but you've said, Pastor, just a few moments ago that our generation doesn't care as much about the facts. We just want to know how it affects us. So what does this really mean to you? After all, the Gettysburg Address was a wonderful speech, but it doesn't affect my life. He said that you could know all the facts, verse 2, and still not have a change of life. And so, why did it happen? Look down with me in verse 12, so I just sort of skip ahead in this long passage. It says, now, if Christ is not proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Again, 
This passage was here because they were doubting their own resurrection. Not Jesus, because they were alive. Many of them were alive just 20 years before. They knew Jesus had risen from the dead. That wasn't a question. But look in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. We're wasting our time. But he says, also, your faith is in vain. Then he goes on to say about your faith in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. He says, your faith is just no good. You said, no, I've got, a, I've got a deep faith. In what? What do you believe in? You know, we can talk about the windshield of your car. Faith is like the windshield of your car. You look through the windshield, but the windshield is not where you're going. The windshield is not what you're really looking at. You're looking through it. You're looking at where you're going. God is on the other side of that windshield. Your object of faith needs to be on the other side of that windshield, not just the faith itself. You can say, oh, I believe, I believe, I believe, but all you're doing is believing in the windshield. You're looking at your windshield rather than looking at what you need to be looking at. The object of our faith, he says, it's just vain, it's, it's just futile. And he says, you are still in your sin. Why is that? Because if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, then that means he wasn't God, that means he died on a Roman cross. Okay, that's true, but he died without purpose. He didn't die for your sins. He said he did, but he also said he rose from the dead. He's going to rise from the dead. But if he didn't, then it's like a house of cards, like dominoes. It just all falls. And so there becomes no resurrected life. Look in verse uh, 17 as we just move ahead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who are fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope. There's no afterlife. There's no, oh, they're in a better place type of thing during a, uh, a funeral. There's nothing there. It's just a windshield. You can believe all you want to, but there's nothing on the other side. So what does this mean? This means, dear friend, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion were not just something that is a luxury to believe in. It's a necessity to believe in, and it changes everything. Rollo May, a psycho famous psychologist, was in Europe during an Easter season. He went to church in one of the European churches, kind of traditional, and he went to church on Easter, and he was sitting in the pew, and the pastor got up and said, Christ is risen. And they said, he is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And back and forth, it went. It wasn't necessarily energetic. It was just sort of rote. But it dawned on him. If Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, that would change everything. And it does. He says, here, you're, you're still in your sin. So what does that mean? That means I have to pay for it. I have to pay for my sin or nobody pays. In other words, when you're dead, you're dead. One of the two without the resurrection. You see, it's just not a matter of, oh, Jesus Christ is one of the ways to heaven. This, this stands against all that. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's salvation on no one else, it says in the book of Acts. There's no one other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Think about it for just a moment. If Jesus, if there was other ways to heaven, why in the world would God design another way that included, that really focused in his own son dying on a cross? Let me put it to you this way. We just, I, I just had a vaccine myself. Other people have had vaccines. We've had, you know, flu shots. We've had all kinds of things that, that we take. Suppose 
there was a virus going around in the world, and it was going to actually destroy the world. It was going to kill everyone. And the scientists were looking for a cure, and they found that they found this certain type of blood that was not exposed, then maybe they could make something. In fact, they were convinced they could make some sort of vaccine for this and save the world. And that one person that they found in the whole world was your son. And they came to you and said, look, you, you've got a chance. You've got a chance for your son to make history, to save the world. And he says, okay, how much blood would it take? He says, oh, it would take all of it. It's going to take all of it. Tough decision. You, you can't imagine. So they said, we'll come back tomorrow. They, came, they come back the next day. A couple other people are with them. Maybe reinforcements. He said, I just, I just don't know how I can do this. Let me ask you one more time. Are you absolutely sure, absolutely sure without any doubt that this is the only way? And God kind of clears his throat and he looks over and he says, what am I missing here? And the guy feels kind of guilty. And he says, well, it's not really the only way. You know, the Switzerland, they, they've got this vaccine coming out. And then they've got this plant in Africa, and they're, they're kind of forming that. And there's something else over here in, um, in England. And, and uh, you know, one of the universities there is making a vaccine. But we need an American vaccine, right? We, we need one for our pharmaceutical company. We need another way. And your son can provide that way. Now, how barbaric would you be in saying, oh, yeah, go ahead and take my son? No, you would kick them out of your house. How dare they come to you and ask you to sacrifice your son just, what, to make them money, to give the, the Americans a way for a vaccine when there are many other ways to form the vaccine? You would never do that. Now, let me ask you this. Why do we think God is so barbaric that he would sacrifice his only son on the cross just to make another way? The Bible describes in John chapter 10, a room maybe like this, we'll just say, a room like this, but there are no doors. Now, there's one, two, three, four, I don't know. There's a dozen doors. There's a dozen ways to get in this building. But suppose there were no doors and you were trapped. Jesus came along and died on the cross for our sins, rose again on the third day, and provided the door, according to John chapter 10. The door. So what does that mean? That means that you and I can have eternal life, that we can go to heaven, that we can have our sins forgiven, that we can have the peace of God ruling in our heart, that we can always be with him, as Matthew 28 says. The original design to have a relationship with God. Now, the question is, and the last question this morning, how do you get in on that? How does it really happen? The Bible tells us, and we can read on in these passages uh, in, in chapter uh, 15 verses 45, it says, the last Adam being Christ is a life-giving spirit. Verse 49 talks about uh, we're born in the image and, of, of the dust. What is it talking about here? Keeping in mind there are other parts of the Bible that just mesh together. John chapter 3, Nicodemus, a man by the name of Nicodemus, a, a Pharisee, a Jewish Pharisee, came to Jesus by night. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said this, truly, Truly, I say to you, unless one be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. He can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. Peter, the apostle Peter, put it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. 
He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why does this happen, have to happen? The Bible teaches us that indeed we are in our sin. Now, I, I know what you may be saying this morning. Boy, that, that is just so insulting for a guy to stand up, and I can't stand up and, and say anything different. And I, I don't mean to be insulting this morning. Kirk Cameron, who used to be on what, Growing Pains, I think the name of the show was, has become since there a minister, as well as still acting some. And he has a great way of, of really expressing this, going over the Ten Commandments, because yes, the main answer I get when I say, do you believe that you're a sinner separated from God? Somebody said, no, I obey the Ten Commandments. I think I'm going to heaven. I'm obeying the Ten Commandments. Well, let's look at them. Number one, thou shalt put no other gods before me. Have you ever done that? Have you ever put anything in all in your life in front of God at any time? I know I have. I struggle with it all the time. I believe most of you do too. What about idols? It says, don't make a graven image. So well, I haven't done that. There's no statues maybe in my yard. But that simply says, don't make an idol in your life. Listen, our hearts, as one uh, uh, pastor said, is an, are an idol factory. We're an idol factory. We, we deal with it all the time. In fact, let me give you a test here. Think about the most important thing in your life. Think about the thing in your life that if that were to cease, it would crush you. It's a family member. Is it a career? Your health? It, it, it would just it, not just disappoint you. Not just say, oh, I'm just going to have to make some adjustments here. Not the, not the wind out of your system. No, I'm talking about just crushing your life. That's your idol. The Bible says, don't take the Lord's name in vain. You ever done that? The Bible says, don't tell a lie. Don't bear false witness. Anybody that's been married. <laughs> How do you like my hair, honey? Great, wonderful. I love it. Like, dresses looks great. You say, oh, those are just white light. They're bearing false witness. And you know we've done that. Lusting your heart. Hatred without a cause. Coveting. How about that one? Number 10. Kind of covers the whole thing. That you want what somebody else want, has. We've all done that. In fact, the truth of the matter is, there's nothing in the Ten Commandments that we have not broken. And the Bible says one sin is enough to separate us from God forever. And it says here in the Bible that whatever, right here in this passage about the flesh, the flesh is just the flesh. That's, that's who we are. That's, that's not just our bodies. That's our identity. That's who we are. Just a human being. Human beings cannot inherit the kingdom of God because of the sinful nature. Flesh does not, cannot make us go to heaven in any way. We've got to have something else. We've got to have the spiritual. We have, have to have Jesus Christ dying on the cross, ascended up into heaven. He says, when I ascend up into heaven, I'm going to send my spirit to indwell you. And the very moment that you and I, according to Ephesians chapter 2 in the Bible, the very moment that you and I receive Jesus Christ into our heart, the Bible says the Holy Spirit of God comes into our heart to ignite our old dead spirit, that part of us that died when Adam sinned against God. You know, in the book of Genesis, it says the same day you sin, Adam, you're going to die. He did, but he lived on spirit, uh, physically. He died spiritually. That part of us that has that relationship with God is just dead. But the Spirit of God comes to live inside our heart, and the Bible calls that being born from above. 
or we would call it being born again. Literally, born again means born from above. Have you had that in your life? It's a, rad- it's a radical thing, really. The same th- thing that Jesus, same word, regeneration, that he used in Matthew chapter 19 when he says, the Son of Man is going to come and regenerate the entire world. Going to replace it. New heaven, new earth. He says that's going to come. It's going to be a glorious time of just recreating everything from scratch all over again. The idea of us having a new heart in the Bible is not about, does, the illustration is not God taking dust from the ground and making man. That's taking a substance and making something else out of it. The idea here is that God created the heavens and the earth. He took nothing and made something out of it. He gives us a brand new heart. And the Bible calls that, and we call that, being born again. What about you? Have you doubts? Do you have your burdens that you're carrying? I know when I received Christ into my life, and I was born again as a teenager, older teenager, I was carrying burdens in my life. And I let go of those burdens. And I really took on God's burdens, you might say, and his burdens are light. A burden to get the word of God out. A burden to, for you to experience God like I've experienced him. I love the book Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory, one of the best sellers really of all time. John Bunyan's classic. If you read it, you remember the scene of the hero whose name is Christian. His shoulders are hunched. He is plodding through the straining with every step. And throughout most of the book, he's carrying this great burden on his back. It is with him night and day. Never does he know relief from the weight of this burden. In one of the most moving scenes of the book, Christian finds the path to salvation. Up the hill he staggers until he reaches the peak. There he sees a wooden cross and just below it, an empty grave. As he nears the cross, a miracle happens. The straps binding the massive weight to his shoulders loosen and his load tumbles away into that grave's awaiting mouth, never to be seen again. An unbelievable feeling of light floods his body. Joyous tears of relief stream down his face. There are three shining people approaching. The first one announces, thy sins are forgiven. The second one strips away his rags and dresses him in splendid clothes. Third one hands him a sealed scroll, which he says is his pass into the celestial city called heaven. In that brief but beautiful scene, John Bunyan eloquently and dramatically dramatizes the message that we're all pilgrims making our way through life, born with a crushing load of sin on our back. But when we finally make our way to the cross, God takes that sin off our back, forgives them, buries them forever in the grave in which Jesus was buried, never to remember them anymore. He dresses us up in robes of righteousness and gives us the ticket of eternal life, which will surely grant us entrance into heaven. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever come to the cross and just say, Lord, I believe in your resurrection. I believe, therefore, in Christianity. It's there. It has to be if the resurrection is true. So I humble myself at the cross I'm not trying to save myself. I'm not trying to be better. I'm not trying to clean up my life. I'm just humbling myself at the cross and saying, God, would you save me? 
and his Holy Spirit comes into your heart and you are ignited on the inside to be born again. I said at the very beginning of this message that I was going to give an opportunity to do that. And I'd like to do that right now. With heads bowed and eyes closed, this morning, as we get our hearts quiet before the Lord, what about you? Wouldn't you love for Easter to work for you? For you to get in on it? Wouldn't you love to have Jesus in your heart and knowing that for sure if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? With our heads bowed before the Lord, and they're at home the same way, would you pray with me right now, receiving Jesus Christ? Lord God, you're right about me. I have sinned. I've come short of perfection. And therefore, I need a Savior. I thank you that Jesus died for me. And he rose again to prove it. I open up my heart. I ask you to come in. Forgive me, Lord. Help me to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.